We'll turn again to uh, Hebrews chapter 3, if you would, this morning. Hebrews chapter 3. And verses 12 and 13. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And let us pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you this morning for the time we have enjoyed so much just to sing to thee and to fellowship together. We thank you for the opportunity to praise you and, and focus our, our souls on the, the infinite excellency of your being. And, and these moments, as we would uh, redirect our minds towards this section of Holy Scripture, I would pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to uh, bring forth your word in a way that is honoring to thee, in a way that is pleasing to thee, and in a way that is re reflective of its meaning. And I again would pray for each one that you have been pleased to bring here this morning. I, I pray uh, you would open their hearts to behold precious, helpful things out of your law that would be uh, of great assistance in their own hearts and, and great help in their own walk with you in this world. So I just commit this time to you and, and pray you would be glorified, you would be honored, and it would be instructive to our own souls. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> the particular copy of the scripture that I have, the, the title uh, over three, chapter 3, verses 12 through 19, is called The Peril of Unbelief. And it begins, that the first verse, verse 12, begins with a sober warning that we noted last Lord's Day morning. It says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls from the living God. And this, this warning derives some of its force from its proximity to the quote that precedes it. It's from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And it brings out the spiritual failure of those in the wilderness, the wilderness generation. And they always went astray in their heart. They were obstinate. They were continually putting God to the test. They, they rebelled against him and against his word. So this warning against falling away from the living God derives some of its force from its location immediately following this particular aspect of Israel's history. So the sense, as I understand it, is don't be like them. In light of that, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And just by way of brief review, last Lord's Day, we looked at five features of this warning. It's a serious, sober warning, and just the content of the text makes that point. It's very serious. But it's also a compassionate warning because it's addressed to brethren, to those who are part of the family of God, to uh, fellow Christians, which I understand that to be to mean it's applicable, therefore, to all professing believers. And, and this warning and other warnings like it especially are a means that God has ordained to help us to persevere in the faith. The concept of persevering in the faith is certainly implicit in this section in verse 6. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. 
Well, then thirdly, we notice there's a, this is a personal warning. Um, if the, uh, be in any one of you. So it applies specifically to uh, everyone who received the letter. And then I indicated it's a moral warning taking off on this, this term evil, um, an evil heart of unbelief. And then it's a consequential warning. Um, the evil heart of unbelief can lead to a departing from the living God. That's the consequence of an evil heart of unbelief, departing from the living God. However, in, in the flow of thought, the authoritative way to respond to this particular warning in verse 12 is found in verse 13. Um, in light of what is said there, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, Peter O'Brien, who I have found helpful, wrote, the author now balances his warning with a positive admonition to his listeners to keep on exhorting one another, to make sure that an evil heart of unbelief does not appear in any one of them. The community as a whole, as well as each member within it, is to be vigilant and constant in their care for others by mutual exhortation. And one other commentator put it like this, the, the author would give his hearers the antidote to this evil heart of unbelief in order to avoid uh, falling victim to its snare. He would have them exhort one another daily while it is called today. And he provides them an example in this sermon which he is sending them in which he calls a word of exhortation. And he references the 10 spies that discourage God's people from faithful obedience, which is the Old Testament background to this. So the, uh, the author's hearers, however, are to encourage one another in reliance on the power and the promises of God. So the thought there would be, don't be like the ten spies in the Old Testament who went into the land and they came back and they, they gave a bad report. And they, they discouraged the people of God from being faithful. And rather the idea, we want to be like Joshua or like Caleb to trust God and to trust in his power. So this morning I want to encourage um, you to consider this particular directive and then some related dynamics that are connected with it. So in the first place, by directive, I'm talking about the term encourage. So in the first place, there's a duty enjoined, and the duty enjoined is to encourage one another. Now, verse 13 begins with a, a strong adversative, as one commentator put it, um, sets the positive exhortation over against the warning of verse 12. And this, this term encouragement, or it's translated encouragement in the, or encourage the New American Standard, is to appeal, to urge, or to exhort. Um, it's to earnestly su support or encourage a response or an action. And the language makes it clear that the author understands this as a mutual responsibility of all believers. It's not just directed towards elders or deacons, exhort and encourage one another. And this is... Um, it's another one of those verb that's, verbs that's in the imperative mood, which gives it the force of a command. So it's not a proposal, it's not a request. Uh, John Brown, who I'll quote from time to time, he was a 19th century commentator I found uh, very instructive. And, and these words are helpful in terms of applying it. He says it's, it's too much the practice of professors of Christianity in our times when they perceive in one of their brethren a tendency, as they think, to depart from the living God, to speak of it to every person rather than to the one to whom alone in the first instance it ought to be spoken of. To lament over it in the presence of others, endeavoring, instead of endeavoring to remove the evil by friendly exhortation to the individual himself, an earnest prayer to God to render the use of the means prescribed by himself effectual for the purpose for which he has appointed. 
Well, let me just offer, offer under this heading some factors that will help our, our understanding and, and application of this directive. In the first place, putting it into practice, that is, encouraging and exhorting one another as the Lord would give us opportunity, putting it into practice replicates what the author of the letter himself is really doing. Um, throughout the letter, he is encouraging and exhorting the readers to particular responses. Uh, the same verb is translated urge in chapter 13 of verse 22. I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. So he regards this whole letter as um, under the category of exhorting the people to respond. As one commentator put it, in effect, he urges the congregation to do for its members what he himself is doing for them in the discourse. And secondly, uh, putting this injunction into practice replicates the character of God himself and how it is that he deals with us. Uh, one wrote, Hebrews makes it plain that God himself gives both promises and warnings to assist his people in their pilgrimage so that they will persevere in the faith and reach their final rest. Now, thirdly, this kind of exhortation uh, to encourage, it's especially, not exclusively, but it's especially applied in the context of the church as a gathered community, encouraging one another, exhorting one another. It's especially applied in the context, not exclusively, but particularly in, in, in a church as a gathered community. Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the Bible urges the people of God not to forsake the assembling of themselves together, uh, don't abandon or leave behind something that God himself has ordained for the mutual benefit or the mutual advantage of our own souls. <clears throat> and, and the reason I, I believe is that when the church is as a gathered community as it is today, there's close proximity to brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and so one of the purposes of gathering together is to be encouraged, to be exhorted, to be consoled, and isolation is antithetical to the application of the benefit of this directive. You have to come together and be close, so to speak, to brothers and sisters in Christ to be exhorted, to be encouraged in this sense. Well, fourthly, the semantic, semantic range, and by that I mean the nuance of meaning of the word translated encourage gives a wide range, or excuse me, a wide variety of application as it relates to mutual ministry. It can be thought of really in two broad ways. Uh, exhortation or warning on the one hand, and encouragement and consolation on the other. In the New American Standard Bible alone, it's translated exhort. 1 Corinthians 4.16, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Entreat in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Appeal in Jude 1.3, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you excuse me, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Urge in 1 Peter 2.11, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul comfort in in first thessalonians 4 18 therefore comfort one another with these words and then encourage in in our particular text so the the wide range of meaning gives a, a multiple applications for one another and then fifthly and kind of related to this um, the language employed here it's reflective of the the mutual ministry that's commensurate with being a member of the body of christ and what i mean there are many texts of scripture where you, you find this kind of one another language, and it's indicative of being a member of the body of Christ. Uh, our text stresses encouraging one another. In Ephesians 4.25, it makes the point that we should
should lay aside falsehood and speak truth, each one with his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Or all members of the mystical body of Christ. We've all been baptized into the body of Christ. We're sharers of the same divine life. And the significance of this relational reality is brought out negatively in some texts. For example, Romans 14, 13 says, Therefore do not judge one another. Or Galatians 5, 15 speaks about if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to one another. But more positively, and I think in line with the spirit of our text, we find verses like Romans 13, 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, We are taught by God to love one another. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, abound in love for one another. Galatians 5.13, through love serve one another. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Romans 15.7, accept one another. Philippians 2.3, regard one another as more important than yourself. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans 15.14, admonish one another. Romans 14.19, building up one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, comfort one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build up one another. So in encouraging one another, it's reflective of this mutual ministry that is so needed in the body of Christ. And it's attainable because... We're all members of the same body, and we're all animated by the same power. We all are filled with the same Holy Spirit, so we're, we're able to do this. And then uh, sixthly, under this heading, a preventative to falling away from the living God is to encourage one another and our own souls with, with the great biblical doctrines related to the salvation of our souls. This is a, a line of thought that was suggested by, by John Brown. Well, how is it that we encourage one another? What I'm arguing here, one of the ways that we encourage one another and ourselves is to remind our souls of the great biblical doctrines that re, are related to the salvation of our souls. John Brown puts it like this, It deserves notice that the word rendered exhort is the same word which is often translated comfort, and it is very probably used to suggest the idea that nothing is better fitted to prevent apostasy than to bring to mind the truth as the exceeding great and precious promises made to those who hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm until the end. It's the good news, the consolatory message of a free and full salvation through Christ Jesus. It's this belief which bind the heart to the Savior and to his law. So a great deterrent to, to falling away from the living God, it's to occupy the mind with some great truth that accounts for the eternal salvation of our souls. So it'd be like being chosen to him, election, being chosen to him before the foundation of the world. Not everybody, as you know, agrees with this, but at least from my own perspective, um, the father gave to his son a people before the foundation of the world, and I persuaded when he died on the cross, it's specifically those for whom he was dying. He wasn't dying for a, a vague, ambiguous, faceless people. He knew specifically those for whom he was atoning when he shed his blood on the cross. But that consideration, to think that when Jesus died on the cross, he was specifically had you in mind, that's conciliatory to the soul. And, and, and so those kinds of thoughts, we have been purchased by the, purchased by the blood of Christ from the the marketplace of sin, reconciled by his blood. So we are to encourage one another. First place, it is a duty that is enjoined upon us. Secondly, there is a duration ascribed to this. The duty is to be practiced day by day. 
Um, one clarifies the, the force of a preposition here and indicates it's day by day by day. So it's an ongoing spiritual responsibility. I, I can't say, well, I encouraged some guy on Thursday, so I think I'm good for the month. You know, That's not the way it works, but it's day after day after day after day. Um, however, I don't think the point, I don't think the point here is, I don't think the text is, is laying upon us that we actually have to admonish or encourage somebody every single day. Uh, Owen, I think, is helpful in his work. He, he says it includes a readiness on the one hand, a constant readiness of, of mind inclining, inducing, and preparing, and, and one for the discharge of the duty. So it involves a, a willingness to encourage, and then secondly, the actual discharge of it on all just occasions, which are to be watched for and to be willingly embraced. He compares it with 2 Corinthians 5, 7, pray without ceasing and again my understanding is that doesn't mean that we pray every minute of every single day but to but to pull from Owen again there's an inclination to pray all the time and then secondly not omitting any particular occasion that comes up for us to pray and so it, it includes a perpetual willingness on the one hand then a positive response when the opportunity suggests itself you would not do this of course but it would be like somebody calling you at 10 o'clock at night and say I've, I've got some issues going on. Would you pray for me? And the right response is, prayer meetings at Wednesday at 730. Um, I'll write it down. We'll pray for you then. I mean, you, you, right now you respond to it. That's, that's the idea. So there's a constant state of willingness to encourage and, and to embrace the opportunities as it arises. Now, the reason for this ongoing disposition of readiness, as B.F. Westcott says, there's a continuous daily need. Owen puts it like this, and, and this these Hebrews now stood in a special need of because of the manifold temptations and seductions wherewith they were exercised. So the great need to embrace this mindset is because while we are in this world, there will always be active forces in play whose goal is to undermine and weaken our faith and trust in Christ, our faith and reliance on his promises. As John Brown wrote, it is plain that the duty here enjoined on the Hebrew Christians is from the nature of the case obligatory on Christians in all countries and all ages. As long as they are exposed to the fascinating influence of an evil world and the endlessly, endlessly varied devices of the crafty old serpent, so long will they need to be exhorted daily, lest they be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Then in the third place, this duty is governed by a limitation. There's what I'm calling a limitation imposed. And I'm thinking of the words here, as long as it is called today, as long as it is called today. And this phrase, um, it does introduce a sense of urgency, a sense of immediate necessity, because it, it, it brings in the limitations imposed by time. The limitations imposed by time. William Lane, I'll talk a bit more about that, but William Lane wrote, the danger of deception by sin and apostasy persists so long as the moment of demand and opportunity, which is called today, is valid. The initial word is the quotation from Psalm 95.7. Today provided the author with a catchword for bringing the biblical statement before his hearers sharply. Today is no longer the day of the past, surveyed by the psalmist in his situation, but the, the today of the present. Uh, again, to look at Owen for some insight here, um, it, it includes an opportunity of advantage, a day of opportunity as intended, but there's a limitation to this day of opportunity uh, included in the words, while it is today. So the words introduce a sense of, of urgency by, by means of two considerations. The issue to be prevented is apostasy. The issue to be presented is falling away from the living God. And secondly, the day of opportunity, it's always limited by time. It, it will turn by means of one of two different realities. 
one's own death, Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for a man once to die and then judgment, or the inbreaking of the, the final kingdom and final judgment with the coming, with the return of the person of Christ. Hebrews 10.37, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not, today, will not delay. So the today of the present will immediately be replaced by another day, which is the day of judgment. Brown writes, they were to exhort one another daily, that is, frequently and without delay. Whenever we observe in brethren what appears to us is an indication of departure from the path of Christian truth and duty, we're to use the means prescribed by the inspired writer for bringing them back. <clears throat> Every step they take in the downward path makes the recovery more difficult, and yet in a little while they will be removed beyond the reach of our exertions. If any of us have a friend whom we think in danger of the greatest of all evils, the loss of the soul. Let us be speedy, diligent, earnest, whether by instruction or admonition or prayer. How soon he may be in that world where warning is too late. The deceitfulness of sin and the preciousness of time are considerations which greatly strengthen each other. As time wastes, the sinner hardens. Not only is the season passing away, but the work is becoming more difficult. So the idea is in the realm of the physical, there are some conditions that arise. Maybe somebody's having chest pain, shortness of breath, other symptoms of a heart attack. You deal with it now. You don't say, well, wait till Monday or Tuesday. You, you deal with it immediately. And the idea here, insofar as we can tell that somebody is, is actually departing from the faith, it's a time of urgency to, to pray or to call or to meet or to appeal as the Lord would give opportunity. So it's a duty that's enjoined. There's a duration that's described. There's a limitation that is imposed. And then I would close with this thought. There is a motivation that is added, a motivation that is added. <clears throat> we read, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have noticed this already. It's a part of the reason why the urgency is needed. Uh, Hughes writes, the purpose of the mutual encouragement, which he advocates, is so, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is directed to all of the, the readers, to all Christians, Owen says, any among you, any of your society that is engaged in the same profession with you and partake of the same privileges and of you believing Hebrews. And here in the apostle extends his direction unto mutual watchfulness and exhortation unto all. So the purpose of the mutual encouragement and exhortation is so that no one would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's a spiritual disorder that we don't want to be affected by. John Brown kind of clarifies what we're talking about here, the meaning of being hardened. is to become insensible to the claims of Jesus Christ so that they, they do not make their appropriate impression on the mind in producing affection, faith, and obedience. He is hardened who is careless, unbelieving, impenitent, and, and disobedient. So the, the effect of sin is to harden the heart. It's to make it um, insensible or an insensitivity to realities of most, that are most important, soul-saving realities. Let me offer under this heading three remarks about the nature of sin that might be helpful the first is the one you're going to expect. Sin is deceitful. It's the nature of sin to deceive. Um, to deceive, it's to mislead, especially intentionally, to cause one to believe what is false or to disbelieve uh, what is true. 
Owen writes, it consists in presenting unto the soul or mind things otherwise than they are, either in their nature, cause, effects, or present respect unto the soul. This is the general nature of deceit, and it prevails in many ways. It hides what ought to be seen and considered, conceals circumstances and consequences, presents what is not or things as they are not. I know many of you are familiar with a little Puritan paperback, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Satan, of course, is a deceiver. And Thomas Brooks presents the first device as to present the bait and hide the hook, to present the golden cup and hide the poison, to present the sweet, the pleasure, the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin, and by hiding from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of the sin. So the nature of sin is to deceive. It's not to present things in their proper light. Secondly, it's progressive in nature. It's progressive in its influences. In James 1.14, it says, um, Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. There's a progressive nature to the character of sin. It begins in the mind. This is why the Apostle Paul was so concerned about the Corinthians. He said, I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Owen indicates it advances by degrees. It starts with the mind, then it goes to the affections, it entangles them, then to the will. There's the consent of the will, then there's the actual act of sin. This is why... um, I don't know when I first heard this. It's the importance of keeping short accounts with God. I heard a sermon recently by a, a preacher. He ascribed that to the Puritans. It's important to keep short accounts with God. It may help you to think in terms of a Visa card. It may not help you to think in terms of a Visa card. But, but the idea is, um, and sometimes when I do, when I do like marriage counseling, I'm, I'm not the financial guru of Reformed Baptist pastors, but what I will, I will often share with young couples is you have to be careful about credit cards. That's a good idea. It's a good idea to pay them off every single month. And I sound a little bit more noble than I really am when I say that because I would probably let it slide a little bit. I mean, you can spend $1,000. All you have to do is pay us $25 a month kind of a thing. But my wife won't let me do that. I mean, when I talk to Carolyn about it, it's like I'm under the law. There is no grace at all. So just forget it. So I sound pretty noble when I'm telling people, now you need to pay your credit card off every month. Nevertheless, I think that's pretty good counsel. Because if you don't, before you know it, it, it it's, it's oppressive and it's overpowering, right? And the idea here is you deal with sin fast. It is progressive. You deal with it in its first motions. You, you repent immediately. You confess sin immediately. It's sort of like you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember your brother has something against you. What do you do? You leave your gift and you go and you're reconciled. So there's an immediacy to, to it. Sin is progressive, so we deal with it immediately. And then thirdly, it's a powerful force. Sin is a powerful force. <clears throat> God approached Cain um, because he was angry that God had no regard for his offering. And, and God, God told him, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. The power of sin is seen in the fact that God himself personifies it 
um, presents it as crouching as at the door. And it's interesting that this term crouching is used in Genesis 49.9 to refer to a lion. So, so you get the picture of sin that is like a lion or a tiger that is waiting to pounce on its prey. So it's presented in the Bible as a powerful force, a, progr- a progressive force, and a deceitful force. So the, the main point I would leave you with this morning is that that mutual, gracious, spirit-led encouragement, exhortation, admonition is a great means of protecting our souls from the deceitfulness of sin, our own hearts and the hearts of others from the deceitfulness of sin and its advancing in our lives. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for your word. I, I thank you for the time together this morning. I pray, Lord, you would take what we have considered and apply it to our own hearts. We thank you that you are a gracious God, and I pray give us wisdom and insight. Thank you that you have given us provision to deal with, ever, with every circumstance that finds us in the Christian life. So I pray you would just take these considerations and apply them to our own hearts and our own souls for your glory and for our good. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.